On this episode of the Fifth Estate Podcast, uh, having a chat with Damien Richardson and John McBride, they're running together as a uh, unendorsed independence uh, for the Senate candidacy uh, in Victoria at the coming federal election. Uh, so yeah, we have a chat about all things relevant to federal politics. Uh, in, in particular, uh, you'll hear a bit later on about his uh, the Facebook video that he did on his return to the shrine for Anzac Day. Go on a bit about that. Um, walk across a bridge that was uh, opened, I think goes across the Murray uh, for something like that from Victoria to New South Wales and a bit of a rant about other things. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. And for this episode of the Fifth Estate Podcast, we have a double team tonight. We're having a, um, let's call it a three-way conversation with Damien Richardson and his running mate, John McBride. Good evening, gentlemen. Evening, Cameron. G'day, Cameron. How are you, mate? Good. How are you going? Oh, excited, mate. Okay, okay that's good. Um, for those who came in late, uh, both Damien and John are running as unendorsed independent candidates uh, for the Victorian Senate. Um, did you you guys got B, wasn't it, on the yes. ballot? Woo-hoo. Yes. Yes. Which is number two for those people who don't know. It's yes. numbered A, B, C, D, E, A, what order you appear on the ballot sheet. The indeterminately long ballot sheet, which is the uh, Senate, uh, ballot sheet, and we're second. So it's a wonderful thing. It's a great coup, yeah. So you, if people start doing the donkey vote, because there's a couple of people that I've, you know, candidates in, in different um, lower house regions um, that scored second position, and I asked them, I said, what do you reckon you're going to get with the donkey vote? And they've said, oh, well, normally people are going to drop the first one and then start the donkey at number two. So, yeah, if you fact that. Who says that? Where um, do you get, I mean, that's music to our ears, of course, but where do you get that such information from, Cameron? Well, it, it was one candidate um, in one uh, electorate that had the the Greens was number one on the ballot and they've turned around and said, well, no one ever votes for the Greens anyway, so the, the donkey vote will start at number two and then just put the Greens as number seven. Okay. So then they'll see my name and hopefully they don't say, well, no one votes for him. He's never run before. So <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, and, and that was the uh, the, the double-edged sword there, um, double-edged yeah. sword knife. Um, but, yeah, um, with that. Well, so- it's clearly a good position is from what everyone talks about, and John maybe can speak to this better, having more skin in the game as having done politics much more than I have. But, yeah, it's clearly was uh, a, a good result, you know, relied on the ballot, but we came up well to get, to get second. When you consider, I think there's something like 38 different people that can be voted for, um, or parties or individuals can be voted for in the Senate. Uh, so to get second is, yeah, is quite the coup. Yeah. Um, okay. Now, just wanted to have a quick chat with you guys. Um, how do you have, okay, you've been out in the regions and uh, pressing the flesh and kissing babies and all that sort of stuff. Yep. Uh, yep. When you're out talking to the people, have you been hearing the same things that the established media tells us that is really of concerning to, the, you know, the voting population? I would say there's an appetite in the community for change, so there's no doubt about it. I think one in every third person is very happy to take my uh, pamphlet, um, you know, and, uh, and read it. 
uh, straight away and say, well, I'm, I'm voting for change this time. Whether it's me or not, of course, who knows? But there's certainly an appetite for change. And I think they're aware of that. I think they're very aware of that. Their polling would be telling them that. Um, I've got someone who works for JP Morgan or something, they've been doing polling, and they told me that's one of the questions actually, you know, which would be fed straight back to the government. Yeah. Who do you intend to vote for at the uh, federal election? You know, and it gives the majors and then it gives, you know, um, or would it be uh, independent candidates that um, you might not have voted for before? And and he's expressed something similar, that there's a, there's a swathe of people that are certainly considering voting how they might not have voted before. And it's hardly a surprise is it, when you consider what Australians have endured over the last two plus years that uh, people would be thinking that way and the lies and propaganda with which they have been fed and they know it. And even if they can't admit it openly because they're frightened for their job or their position or their status or even their position in their family because we've seen this just wreck a path of destruction in families, they can, they know full well in the privacy of the ballot box, uh, make a choice that no one else needs to know about and certainly won't... Uh, we're hoping for and uh, we're part of that movement. We are a protest movement and we're organically grown up out of that movement, you know. And we're finding that out, aren't we, John, in many respects because, you know, now we've got to come up with a structure to, to uh, accommodate for that uh, expression and there's people that really want to support us and be part of this movement and John and I, it's uh, without with very limited funds of the you know, come up with a mechanism where uh, we can uh, best uh, maximise uh, our vote. So, okay, have you had the um, the preference whisperer uh, get in contact with you guys? Um, I'm, I'm not sure whether he's doing preference whispering for this election, but um, have you Doesn't, made any decision on where I, your preferences are going? Go, well, it's uh, there's no group voting ticket for um, Glen Jury to preference whisper on. Mm. So there's nothing for him to – I mean, you could organise it the general way, et cetera, but the, but the key to his success was always a group voting ticket, mm. um, and that's, that's not available. They got rid of that in 2016 because of what Glen Jury had done previous to that, where he was able to get a, a massive amount of crossbenchers up in the Senate on very minor votes by doing preference swaps between parties. Now, that, they took that away from him. Put a call to double dissolution, um, and they so they rigged the system back, or managed the system back, so it fav- it was back to the fa- favouring the majors, and they took out that loophole that jury had been playing with, and to his advantage, um, that's gone now. So we're back. It's a different system. This is the only. This is the third time we've gone to a federal. Like we had the double dissolution with the new system, the two thousand nine, and this one. So. There's the, it's the only the third time. So people people are still trying to work out what what the system will will sort of just produce. Mm. So no short answer. No, we haven't heard from Glenn. Okay. No, but we've done a a preference deal with Morgan C Jonas because he's a, a, the other independent mm. uh, running on similar ticket to us, running for freedom, and uh, we found a natural home with him and a natural affiliation, and he's. Uh, doing the same with us, obviously. So um, oh, I forgot to tell John he might be interested. I actually talked to Morgan uh, earlier in the day, mate, and he wants to do a uh, a video where we both sort of um, say as much that we're supporting one another, which we could put, both put up on uh, on our platforms. But I don't think we've done any other preference 
uh, deals as yet. Um, been letting no, John. There's, there's been a bit of reach out, but we made a decision that really, at the end of the day, we uh, we're we're because of Damien's leadership of the movement anyway, um, and his runs on the board that we uh, we are um, only only prepared to back Freedom Party people. We need to see who emerged. Um, there's a couple of possibilities there, but we've just simply made a decision to stay away from the brands mm. and get sort of caught up in that mechanism and just stick with Morgan. He's obviously one, like us, kindred spirit, same movement, looking for the uh, same sort of result as an independent seat in the Senate. So we figured we'd just stay true to who we were, to be honest. Mm. Okay, well, that is good to hear because I'm sure everyone would be really upset if they, you, you know, it, it worked out that your how to vote card was going to preference um, one of the three little groups over someone else uh, and, and things like that. So that is good That's to hear. Right. Well, yeah. No, so anyway, I was just going to ask, um, you, you were talking about um, with the stuff, um, taking out the little loopholes that um, Glenn Drury found, uh, you know, that's – fortifying the billabong. Um, do you think the established media or corrupt corporate press, as I like to refer to them as, uh, is, is doing anything with that? Are they just reaffirming the, the uh, reaffirming in people's minds that there's only two parties or it's, it's the minor party, which is the Greens, and that everyone else is a wasted vote? Uh, do you want to talk to that, Dave? You want me to jump in? You go for it. All right, it used to be that they divided it up, that there was the majors, which was the two-party preferred, you know, the, the government and the opposition, uh, they, you know, that flick between Labor and, and, and the Liberals. And then there was the minor parties, which were the Greens, and then you had what they call the micro parties, which pop up all over the place. That that was the best way. To, now, the Greens have slipped in. They're a brand. They're well-established. they got a green game. There's a non-organisation. They are a brand. They can't form government in their own right, but as we saw in with Julia Gillard, they can form a coalition or we can get their agenda up. But so they're a brand, they're here to stay, they're not going away tomorrow. So they get about 80% of the vote on average, you know, as a rough estimate over overall, about 80% as a rule of thumb, that they will get about 80% of the vote between those three and the nationals, of course, are in there as well, um, and which throws off 20%. And traditionally, about 5% don't turn up or vote informally. So that leaves you about 15% under the old paradigm. Under the old paradigm, there's 15%. And the phenomena that's happened over the last couple of years, this organic movement, the protest movement, the freedom movement, that's, they've measured that as what that's given us is 10% of the brand that used to be locked on, you could count on, the number crunches were working on that sort of baseline. They have moved over into the area of what we call the micro-parties or, or the protest vote or what have you, mainly represented by micro-parties um, and independents, they're there. And that trend has been going on and picked up pace and it looks like it's solidified around 10%. So the old paradigm that they were using pre-COVID and previous nonsense, it doesn't hold true anymore. Can the, they're, they're looking now to... The majors are in panic because their number of people have come to them and said, we're, we're in trouble here. We don't know if they're going to come back, if they're going to preference micros and come back to us at some point. Um, and they're trying to – and they set up a system. They've set up a system <laughs> so that they can catch – so that they, 
they can allow for the protest, but really caption back in at the end, you know. So, uh, and that's what they're panicking about at the moment, and that's the phenomenon. It's their inability to readjust, isn't it? Their inability to adjust to what was being demanded from the population. So they're in fealty to corporations, to this fusion of the corporate state. So they've got no one but themselves to blame. Mm. And, and that's the point, isn't it? it isn't yeah. it? We can we can talk about the result of it, but uh, but what was the symptom? What what they should be asking themselves is well, why did ten percent of the population? Because you guys were managing at a federal and state level, why has ten percent of the population walked away from you, withdrawn your their faith in you? They're not prepared to invest their time or vote in you anymore. You've got the pro- you've created the problem, yeah. right? We're saying. We have we see what the problem is, and we we're offering a solution to the problem. So we're in conflict now with the establishment. They want those ten percent back in somehow. They'll spend a lot of money between now and election day trying to convince them. They're running the line. Neil Mitchell was running the same line for on commercial radio, which is, you know, don't vote for chaos. This is all in the really what they're saying is the status quo is at risk now, at serious risk. Um, and they want they want to move us back to the status quo. That's the best solution for government problem. contracts too, aren't they? Like three AW and all the mainstream media are touting for government contracts. It's how does the money get paid back into the system via them? Is through government contracts? Is ultimately through taxpayers' money? And they they imagine obviously that somewhere along the line it's either Liberal or Labor that are going to form government because they always do. So the system's been totally gamed, totally gamed yeah. by the corporations. And I mean, yeah, and there's going to be a huge spend in that last week by the majors, and there's only so many uh, advertising slots available, and the rates for those slots always go up in that last week because demand is high, um, and they're going to. So they want to establish themselves as the voice for those advertising dollars. So that's my cynical view of Neil Mitchell and the establishment and the rest of Channel 9, all the rest of them. Why do they run the inability of the Liberals has surprised me, the inability of the Liberals to pivot because we saw that with last time when Scott Morrison was installed rather late in the day as the the Prime Minister, the Conservative, alleged Conservative Prime Minister, and he pivoted against uh, Bill Shorten and his extreme measures around climate. And he won that election, basically coming out against the strictures of climate, climate change. And then we got nothing really from him, or did he lose confidence because he lost the support of Donald Trump because Trump went so hard against him and did something amazing like pulling us out of the Paris Protocols, et cetera. So we lost heart somewhere. But I thought he would pivot at some stage on the mandates, and he hasn't done that at all. So where, what space is left between him and Labor? He's made no space there at all coming up to an election, except, well, hopefully they think I'm not as bad as that guy. That's all he's got. Well, that hardly enlivens the base and makes you want to vote for him. Yeah, and and that was going to be the next thing. Is That's what I've been uh, noticing is that it's just scaremongering, like, um, you know, the ALP and the union movement and all that. And have gone. Scaremongering and name calling, yeah, you know? the anti-vaxxers, yeah, whatever else they want to call us. You know, the pejoratives come out. It's an extraordinary thing too when you consider there was five hundred thousand plus Victorians for four weekends in a row late last year demanding change. That's a huge cohort and a huge demographic that they've just let slip through their fingers. Mm. 
and that's obviously our appeal. Ours appeal is to, to those people. If you want a representation, political representation, then vote for independence. Vote for Damien Richardson and John McBride in the Senate because if we get enough of the vote, we'll install John. And what a wonderful thing that would be with the political acumen um, John has uh, gained over many years being a political operative. Yeah. Uh, it would be fine to see both of us um, sitting in the Senate, you know. Fingers crossed that does happen. Um, but, I mean, like in in reality we know that the system's stacked against new parties, um, new candidates, um, especially independents. Uh, so, you know. We'll even have the timing of the calling of the election. Like there's, we, you know, we've been disrupted by the the amount of holidays. There's been over Easter and now there's had the Anzac Day weekend as well. We haven't been able to do things that we're expected to do just to uh, – not full foul of the AEC, so yeah. it's been very. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought that was a bit of a of a low blow um, from Morrison to do that when the the role closed on a public holiday. So I mean, you know, if people are updating their details because they're a sign-out elector or something like that, they've got to go and get their stat deck certified by someone. And you know, with in, in Victoria. The um, JPs, the uh, I remember last time I went to go and get stat deck done, is that the JPs weren't doing any in person ones, um, mm. so that restricted that. And mm. you know, the only option most people had on the weekend was to go to the the local police station to get you know a, was it sergeant or above to mm. um, to sign their thing or go and find a chemist that's open, and if the chemist does do it, so. Yeah, well, there's a myriad of problems too because, like, we're allowed to vote no matter our vaccination status. We're allowed to enter buildings that we might normally be allowed to enter for the purpose of expressing our democratic right, but then uh, scrutineers have to be double-vaxxed. You cannot be a scrutineer uh, if you're not double-vaxxed. So, I, yeah, I did want to bring that more one up. interruption interference in the political process. So, yeah, he's not wanting to... Um, you know, conspiracy theory or, or anything like that, um, does it cast doubt on the, um, I won't say integrity, um, but more the, the process with what's going on if, uh, you know, let's say, you know, you guys have got your scrutinies that you've nominated and they've chosen not to uh, divulge that medical information to anyone, so obviously they wouldn't be able to get in. Is that going to be a, a deliberate hindrance um, well, I hope not because our broad appeal is obviously that's that cohort that resisted the program for getting vaccinated and the whole agenda around COVID. But we also really want to appeal to those people who, for whatever reason, given the best information they had at the time and uh, with no judgment whatsoever, that decided that they would take one or two vaccines and maybe had a booster as well. But now in hindsight, wish they hadn't or feel they want to get off that freight train because they don't believe it is anymore in their health benefit, then we appeal to those people more than any other group in many respects to join Damien Richardson for the Senate because we are your voice as well. And this movement will gain momentum and gain strength through those people understanding that we do really reach out to those people. And I'll tell you why I reach out to those people because half those people are my friends and family because so many people have been compromised in this process and so many of them want to jump off the train. Mm. So... Hopefully, there's a whole stack of people there that can scrutinise for us because they actually have they have the uh, appropriate um, vaccination status. Mm. 
I think there was a thing in the media today, um, 1,500 teachers and support staff are going to be sacked um, tomorrow or um, next mm. week for not, you know, complying with um, Supreme Leader Andrew's uh, mandates. Well, that's a state issue, but there it yeah. is again. There it is. And the, and the waves are going to break now on the 21st of May. That's the first opportunity that Victorians in particular have to express their anger or distrust with the system. And so... Yeah, that would. I'm sure that would send some real shockwaves through the Andrews government if there's a, if there's a backlash that doesn't find uh, itself, you know, voting Labor, but actually votes for independence, moves away from both the majors, put the majors last, mm. and vote for independence. And uh, yeah, what a wonderful thing that would be. And mm. it would put him notice. So what would he do? You know, come November. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, like you know. I'm, Got an each way bet about whether he continues the mandate uh, when it expires in July. Uh, his his um, uh, pandemic declaration because I think if he renews it, that's three months, which is going to take him to October. But then he won't want to continue it because he won't want to piss everyone off for the last well, three months. Well, there's so many people leaving the state that mm. he figures those people that are leaving the state are clearly the people that are against this agenda. And so maybe that suits his political purposes. I mean, is he that Machiavellian? And I wouldn't put it past him because there is a lot of people um, leaving Victoria as a result. Mm. I think uh, Victoria was the only one to have a negative population growth um, over, the, I think, it was the last 12 months. We all know the virus is political and so there you go. That, yes. that might that may well suit his purposes. And maybe it's just the leadership or those people that could organise serious resistance against his uh, his program. Mm. Um now, just changing tack a little bit, um, you did a little bit of a um, Facebook video uh, that I saw about uh, you were sitting at the shrine for Anzac Day mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. everything like that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I know it's a bit of a personal question, so, you know, feel free not to answer it or anything like that. I'm not trying to, to you know, dig into mm-hmm. um, anything personal. Did it stir any, um, like, symbolism of the shrine aside, Um knowing what happened over the last two years, especially that event that we spoke about in the last one at the Shrine and everything like that, yeah. was yeah. it an emotive thing where you, you know, that finally you were able to go there and you didn't have the enforcement arm of the state, um, you know, threatening your life or anything like that? And and I'm not trying the to be dramatic with coloured. anything like that. Well, the Shrine has been coloured, obviously, now to some extent by what you're talking about, the protest that was there last year. I think it was on the 22nd of September last year. But the Shrine is, uh, holds a far deeper significance to me than that moment because I grew up as someone that uh, commemorated Anzac Day um, every single year. I used to go with my grandfather to the local RSL and, uh, as I think I say in one of my videos, you know, and drink a little nip of rum sometimes I put in my coffee and stuff, even I was a young man, you know, and uh, the significance of Anzac Day was really borne out on me. So it was something that meant a lot to me well and truly before what happened in that protest movement at the shrine and as, as well as just the absurdity of being told that we urinated on the shrine, et cetera, as if there wasn't. And, again, it's places like 3AW that will just throw that, you know, derogatory term at us like, well, well who, who urinated on the shrine? Is there any footage of it? No. Someone heard that someone did. I'll tell you what, urinated on the shrine, that was a police horse. And, of course, a horse did because a horse just made a mockery of everyone being assembled there and just urinated as a horse would, as animals can. Mm. But what do we say really to this to this uh, objection by the mainstream media? 
has there anyone in the organisation at Channel 9, Channel 7, 3AW, et cetera, ever done anything to bring that organisation to disrepute? Does that mean everything that organisation has ever stood for is sullied by that? Of course it doesn't. So can we please have a serious conversation about what was happening that day at the shrine? People were not urinating. I never saw anyone urinating. I saw a young man younger than me, which could have brought a tear to my eye, walking around with what he could, what he had on him at that particular point in time, was, which was a plastic bag, making sure to making a concerted effort to pick up any rubbish and any bottles that were defacing that monument. Does anyone talk about him? I could have probably find footage of him and, 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 and many other in his number as well. So can we please have a serious conversation or are we just going to just get into um, uh, dismissive argument so therefore no debate can be had at all? Because urinated on the – no one urinated on the shrine. And why why did the corporations come out in unison already uh, bagging the protest movement before it had even been revealed what had happened at the shrine? Because they know what to do. They know what to do as a corporation. They know how to spin the narrative before the circumstances have even eventuated. Yeah. So let's talk about that. That's what I want to talk about. That's why I'm running for the Senate, so I can bring up these conversations, so we can have these conversations in the pulpit, in the pulpit which is, you know, the national parliament, protected, of course, by the freedom of speech that you're offered in there. Mm. Okay. Okay. Mentioned freedom of speech and... and um, sorry, John. Did you want to add anything to that bit before I continue on the on the free speech rant? No, no. I think James got that covered. Okay. All right. Okay. So, free speech. We've we've seen. Um, let's say the authoritative left have a meltdown because um, Elon Musk has turned Twitter private. Um, is that going to be a good thing for free speech, or is it going to be a bad thing? And what does it say about free speech in general if a um, billionaire has to buy a social media platform to make it a place where it is free speech. Well, I'll tell you what, the left have got a lot of billionaires on their side buying everything up, corrupting the institutions. You know, the long march, as we talk about, through the institutions, they've taken over everything. So we're going to need some serious money to mm-hmm. fight back somewhere along the line. There's nothing's been borne out more than that than John and I trying to run uh, this campaign against vested interest. Sure, it gives us a strength of purpose and solidifies the movement because it's a, a movement for truth, but it's not going to hurt, surely, to have someone with some money be part of that process because that's just the pretense of the left, isn't it, that they're still fighting the man, even though the man has all the opinions they have. Mm. They're exactly the same, but still the pretense continues. Mm. Um, yeah, do you want me to, if you don't mind me stepping yeah, in? Yeah, go, go ahead, John. The the the. I, like if, like you guys, have watched the phenomena in America uh, over the last few years and here in Australia and um, especially around free speech. And I like Elon Musk because, he, well, he's declared that he's a free speech absolutist and, and I support that decision, right, <laughs> because I think Elon gets it. Well, I'm, a, you know, I'm reading into what I, what I think he wants, but I, what I would want is... Free speech is absolutely imperative to maintaining and growing uh, civilization, especially the model we have, which we, uh, we, you know, uh, Western civilization is the model we're working on. So, 
What I see, what I've seen over the years, it's happened here, and Damien said it right with the, the big tech and and what have you. Is is free speech is the public forum. Ideas enter the public forum. So, and then what we're really what what's the end result of that is to it's the mechanism to resolve conflicts between disparate parties that have different points of view. Okay, and the idea is that. In a society, you need to hear the view. You then need to, you need, you then need. The aim, of course, is to get to a point where you get a consensus on a on a on a on agreement. That's the equilibrium in the, in the system. We're all aiming for that equilibrium uh, with the with the consent. You know, how do we go forward with on this particular issue, whatever it is? We've well, got to get the, the input is the freedom of speech. Then you've got to. You're never going to be happy. Not everyone's going to be happy, but you've got to get a you've got to get to an equilibrium point in the conversation where there's something on the table that that really it's the way we're structured is that really what we're aiming for is we're aiming for the majority, the general agreement of the majority, not everybody, just the majority, and then that's because that's what democracy is, the general agreement of the majority, and then that should be informing public policy, right? That's and that's the res- that's what we've had in place up till this point. That's what the, the labor movement couldn't have got ahead, um, except that it was it, it was we had free speech in place and we had protests and what have you. You established the labor movement, John, too, because and then I found out something I found out and I hadn't really thought of mm. is it's imperative to human dignity. Free speech is imperative for human dignity, and that John rightly talks about the labour movement in that respect. But now I've seen this obviously clearly with people who have a problem with the vaccination program, people who believe their children. I interviewed them in my capacity as you know an alternative alternative media personality. People who feel like their children have been killed by the vaccination program. Other people have been injured, or the amount of myocarditis we're seeing. Um, uh, exhibit itself in the community, and you're not allowed to have that experience. But that is your experience. So, what does it say for human dignity when your experience is um, voided by the status quo? Because the status quo is more concerned with buttressing the way it now makes money, how people are getting wealthy. Yeah. That's a real shot across the bow to human dignity. So yeah, we're actually talking about the dignity of the human being. Yeah, and, and and that and that is one of the effects of the manipulation of the system that they put in place. But but and you're right, don't you're dead right. Make no mistake. What we're seeing is a manipulation of a system because they they want the result, which is public policy. That's the end result out of yes. that conversation in public. Now they've got their public policy, which they can't get the majority to really. To get it through, they've got to manipulate it through the system. So they censor the input. They stop people that are against it rather than allowing them to speak. They vilify you for having an opposite position for it so that they denigrate you. So that what they're really doing is taking the, the taking your idea and trying to bucket you as an individual for having an idea and by saying the idea is a conspiracy theory. So mm-hmm. it, does, it's, it doesn't have a legitimate place in, in the discussion. But what's – and all of that is contrived – by the people that have got, can exercise mm. that power, mm. all that is contrived to get to a public policy result where they can say, well, we've, we've got the general agreement of the majority, therefore that's a consensus, that's public mm. policy. 
mm. and it's not working. And manipulated by the corporate media and propagandised and the public are terrorised by corporate media. I've never seen anything like it. Mm. Okay, yeah. so with, with this thing, I mean, if anything's taught us over the last two years, if the last two years have taught us anything, it's the wildest what they call conspiracy theory ends up being some part of government policy somewhere down the line, whether it's 12 months or two years later. And, I mean... What's, what's the difference between conspiracy theory and fact? Yeah. About six months. Yes. Um, and, and this is... It makes you wonder what's coming next. Oh. <laughs> if you read his book, um, there's a lot of scary stuff coming next. Um, Klaus Schwab's got a plan. Yep. He's got a plan. <laughs> yep. Um, I think it's a little bit better than Albo's plan, but anyway, um, we'll leave that one aside. Is he that clever? Is he that clever? Does he really have that control or is he an opportunist that's trying to use, yeah, who knows? Who, Klaus or Albo? Well, I don't think Albo. Well, I mean, I I think... Albo's tied in knots by the party he's affiliated with, which is a party of identity politics. It's not a party of the working man. It's a party of identity politics, so that's why the guy can't really win. Hmm. Public no. argument because he's incapable of speaking honestly and openly because he couldn't yes. say the things that the three of us are saying on this show. And what have we said, really? What have we said that's so outlandish, so outrageous? Absolutely nothing. Hmm. Just some common sense approach to living and conducting um, a, a polity. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, the, lab, the labor movement of the last century is no longer the, the ALP of this century. They are lost. They are lost in the mires of identity politics because mm. Paul Keating and Bob Hawke finished off their agenda, the labour movement agenda. That was pretty much fit in, in the market restructuring and whatever. That was all done under under uh, Hawke and Keating. Um, and so that's done and they've been – and even Keating in that last term that he got, he started to embrace identity politics because he didn't have anything else to do. He'd run out of ideas. Mm. His social justice has become his thing, didn't it? Yeah. And then we yeah. saw him on the so, Yeah. Now, 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 now Rudd, Rudd appeared when that when the electorate was just tired, you know, that, well, they were just, you know, the, when Howard had become stale and they were, oddly enough, they were successful. The restructuring, he managed that restructure that Keating and Hawke had put in place. It had generated budgets, which he gave over to Costello for the Australian. It, it had been successful and people were just relaxed and prosperous. And, and Rab was working. saying that climate change was the greatest moral challenge of our time. So it was already yeah. there. <laughs> what? Plant food. Plant food in the environment is something that's going to destroy the entire world. I mean, are you fair dinkum? More people living on the planet than ever before, living longer than they've ever lived before. Yeah. And there's no hard science for it. They can't get no, no actual right. hard science. They tell us there's hard science, but when we ask them to produce mm. it, they don't. They give us an IPCC report and a mathematical model that doesn't work. And we know that because mm. they gave it. They gave us to those at last century, at the end of the 90s, and it just no, nothing they predicted has come true. Yeah, where well, they threaten your employment. You're not allowed to hold those thoughts as as well, like we are talking about before with COVID. You're not allowed to hold those thoughts either, Matt, that uh, – don't concur with whatever they've decided um, on climate. Okay, just yeah. interrupt in that one there. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when way back in the 70s and the 80s, it was the coming ice age that was going to be the killer of man. Um, <laughs> yeah, I remember that too. I still remember I that. Too. And it's a thing. I can, that, yeah, go ahead, John. Yeah, sorry. Oh, no, sorry, I was just going to add to it. In the late 80s, sort of 80s, when climate change 
when we'd, when we'd flipped from a, we were the approaching ice age and they'd flipped into when the IPCC, the UN started to run this agenda, they were talking about the climate change and the climate's getting hotter. And I can remember talking to friends saying, why don't we get ahead of it and go and buy land in northern Tasmania? It'll be beautiful in 20 years. Mm. <laughs> well, it was global warming at first, wasn't it? And then it became climate change. No, the hole in the ozone change. layer. It was, it was yeah, the ice age, right, then the hole in the ozone, ozone layer, then it became global warming. You never hear about the hole in the ozone layer anymore, do you? It's, it's taken a real backseat. Mm. And I mean, well, they put the solution in. They mm-hmm. put the solution in and they've now come they, – they realise that, it, like all things in nature, there's a cycle to that hole in the ozone layer. It actually enlarges and contracts and enlarges and contracts in a cycle. That's it. I mean, the gases that were going up there, they made scientific – I can't prove that they're wrong. They made that argument that if we can stop putting that into the atmosphere, that will stop feeding into it. Like, look, they might have been right, but, you know. And um, again, look, it's because that difficult, isn't it, when, God's, when man starts to play God? Or loses faith in any idea of it. Yeah, so, do you guys remember Beyond Two Thousand? Master of his own destiny. Sorry. Do you guys remember Beyond Two Thousand? Used to be on Channel Seven talking about everything that was going to be coming. This was in the eighties. Oh, yeah, that the, science show. Yeah, yeah. They I love that show. they did a thing with liquid chlorofluorocarbon, and that was going to be the wonder chemical. They dropped a TV in it and everything, and the TV didn't short out. And this was going to be the wonder thing, and then. Less than a decade later, it's banned because supposedly it creates a hole in the ozone layer. Um, oh, it created the hole, did it? Right. Well, yeah. supposedly, chlorofluorocarbons well, were the ones that did it. That's why you had to take it out of your fridge. Their own ingenuity caused their own destruction. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, it's funny. Look, to be honest, you want to go straight to conspiracy on climate change? It's it's the UN's agenda. Mark Strong, Doctor Mark Strong, the UN agenda in the eighties, and it was about getting a tax base because they're an institution with some sort of power, but their trouble was they had to wait on donations. They wanted to be a nation state over the top of us, a sort of group, over the top of the whole lot of us, and they wanted a tax base. <laughs> and the carbon tax, even the one that Gillard put in for the brief period it was there, 10% of that carbon tax went to the UN. All right? So it's a ta- it was a tax base for an institution. That's yeah. what it really was. Well, internationalism, globalism, yeah. Yeah, yeah. they wanted a tax bus. They, they so when the WHO comes and, you know, uh, administered the next pandemic in Australia, which I've heard allegedly that's, you know, uh, legal that they would do that next time, what does that even mean, that they will have the foot soldiers to enforce its implementation? It makes no sense. It's insane. How many foot soldiers are they going to have? Are going to enforce it across the whole of the Western world and, and even beyond? Yeah, I've... It, been seeing um, that there was some proposed um, global uh, multi multilateral treaty um, on management of, of a pandemic. Um, I think they turned around and said that April 21 was when it happened and they, uh, I've been seeing some weird stuff saying that the constitution ended on April 21 because of something signed by the UN and the WHO. But, um, so just a week ago. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. I, I haven't... Honestly, I haven't looked too much more into that, but for multilateral treaties to become law in Australia, it has to be ratified and normally it takes probably nearly a decade from signature to, to the time that they're ratified. Um, but I mean, even if you did sign it, I don't think Australia would have been able to sign it because we would have been in caretaker period then anyway. It's um, got to be passed by Parliament. Yeah. 
Trent's got to go through Parliament. Yeah, yeah. so that's just that's just the first step. That's the offer. Yeah, we've got to negotiate the outcome. Yeah. Um. So I mean, you know, that that's one of those. It's nonsensical. So it might be our own side trying to frighten us as well. You know, or is it the other side trying to frighten us and demoralise? Who knows? The propaganda war is. Um, yeah. Difficult to decipher. I think there's really a lot of that. It's a period to truth. Yep, absolutely. Um, and, I mean, okay, talking about being able, unable to um, decide the truth. Okay, let's say you guys both get into Parliament, into, into the Senate. You're sitting there. You've got that vote, your key vote for the crossbench. Um, and I know it's a very complex situation and I'm not looking for a, a complex answer, just, I mean, as, as simple as you can make it. Um, if you can make it simple. What do you do about Ukraine? Do you want me to pick that up, Tommy? Well, we don't have a policy on Ukraine. We, are, uh, in some respects, I uh, think we'd be more like uh, Don Chip's Dem- Democrats of 1977, you know. So we're a part of a protest movement, protest party. We're a disruptive influence. We want to disrupt, disrupt the status quo that's so comforting for all those uh, parliamentarians that owe their loyalty and fealty to a, um, the party structure and not to the Australian people. And the Australian people have had enough. The people I've talked to, the people I've seen and moved with have had enough. They want change. They want representation, real representation, not filtered through um, loyalty to a party or to institutional corruption because that's where the money's coming through or it's being gamed by the United Nations or the WEF or Big Pharma or whatever else it is. I don't know what's happening in the Ukrainian region. It's such a complex region. I can say some really simple things like, uh, you know, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis when the uh, Soviets, you know, deployed nuclear warheads on Cuba facing Florida and the Americans weren't very happy about their sphere of influence being uh, disrupted. Well, I can appreciate that the Americans felt that way, so maybe the Russians have a case in point too with uh, NATO trying to be on their doorstep in the Ukraine. Does that mean that I can, you know, I can't have any empathy for the Ukrainian peoples that, um, you know, um, may now have reached refugee status or been killed in a war? No, but I, I don't have a policy on it. I don't have a policy position on it. Yeah, I mean, that's fine. I mean, I'm not trying to catch you guys out in a gotcha moment or anything like that because, you know, that wasn't the point of answering, asking the question. It was more about, um, you know, exactly what you said. Um, have sympathy for the people that are, are are facing, you know, what they're facing. But then, it's it's more complex than that. It's not just something where you. I mean, personally, I disagree with Australia putting sanctions on Russia because it only hurts the people. It doesn't hurt the government. Um, and then, well, the irony of Scott Morrison giving lectures to Putin about you know democratic processes and freedoms is uh, certainly not lost on anyone. In, mm. in our terms, for sure. Mm. Um, and, we, and just, just, just quickly, as Damien said, which one will assess the, what the truth is there with the UK? We'll have a look at the response from Scott Morrison and the Labor everyone about China putting bases in the Solomon Islands. I know mm. it's gone straight to the top. It's it's all the threats now. So that's but that response from Morrison is legitimate, a legitimate concern. But the but the way working on the principle that the first casualty of war is the truth. Okay, so both have put their machines into place. Zelensky's run a campaign with international backing, what have you, to uh, for his side of the, his version of it. 
and then you've got Putin, and Putin's put his, his position there. And if you look at the track record, Putin he respected the uh, respected the rules-based order, approached the institutions for a problem that was that started to flare up in 2014, but it predates that too with NATO expansion. He looked he looked to the rules-based order for a solution. He had Minsk agreements in place around the Donbass with ceasefires and what have you. Mm. So he was he was he was in there negotiating a settlement for eight years prior to this. So to say suggest that he's just a warmonger is obviously a nonsense compared to the evidence on the table. But here's the frightening thing: I can't get RTTV. I can't get the other view. Um, they've censored the media. I, I, I'm not getting the truth. Mm. I, I hear about. Well, lucky that lucky I found Oliver Stone's movie Ukraine on Fire that does a, a bit of a, doc, a documentary around the 2014 and the rise of the Nazis, etc., etc. To give me at least a perspective, the Channel Nine News is not going to anymore. Mm. So. I, and this is state of Russia problem. itself has been cancelled as part of cancel culture. Russia has yeah. been cancelled. <laughs> yeah, it's it's economic warfare. It's and really it's also left the international banking system as well. And that's yeah. interesting to me. Is that something to do with why Russia has been cancelled? I wouldn't be surprised. Well, I think it's going to backfire. He's got a gold. He's got gold. He's already yes. got bricks in place. He's already exactly. so the the idea that anyway that the idea that America's been based on. The, it was the international medium of exchange, which meant people had to get. If you wanted to do trade on the international, you had to use you, the, the currency was the American dollar. And on the back of that, they've been able to print money in the American system, which would have normally caused hyperinflation and collapsed it over time. But because of that mechanism, where people had to go and buy the dollars, the big international companies to do those transactions, they they've just exploited it. So that that that's all that's all at risk. And in damage, that's they're in damage control now. So, but just go back to the. I just wanted to drag back to the point where, again, it's around free speech. How can we get to a, a resolution, a general agreement by a consensus, a general agreement to form the public policy if we don't even know what's really going on? If you can't, if if you don't tell us the truth, how the hell do we get to a a, a public, a proper, reasonable adult decision? about resolving the conflict. And that's the problem, that their censorship and domination of the narrative, um, that's that's one of the, that's one of the consequences of the, of the smarties dominating the narrative. Um, and it's so perversely obvious now too, the propaganda is so perversely obvious with no pretense to um, any sort of uh, uh, acceptance of what the other side might be saying that... Uh, that's our constituency again are so so readily aware of it. So perhaps we have more to say on the Ukrainian issue than even John and I could have possibly imagined. And because we, it all exists within the prism with which the, the, the movement is occurring. And and that's it. I mean it, it's one of those things where it's you know, you have to look, is it part of and you know, I, I know it's it's probably been done to death now, but is it part of um, the World Economic Forum's Great Reset, where they've got to crash economies um, uh, and, and things like that? You know, which ties into the Reserve Bank looking at um, the Reserve Bank of Australia looking at a digital dollar, which ties into as we discussed before, 
everyone getting that muscle memory of QR coding in. So when the social credit score comes in, then, hey, you know, they're going to Woolies to buy something or but no, they can't go to Pizza Hut because they've, you know, consumed too many they're calories. They're pizza or, that week. Yeah. Well, that's yeah, nice, yeah. And, I mean, you know, it, it's it's that. I mean, you know, and, and we were talking about conspiracy theories, but if you read his book and you listen to – everything that's been going on and the information that they're hiding in plain sight because they know the average Joe um, or Jane isn't going to spend the time to go and trawl through the hours and hours of stuff that they've got on the the World Economic Forum. They're going to listen to, um, and no disrespect to him, they're going to listen to Peter Hitchener because they've trusted him over the last 20 years or whatever it was, or they're going to trust whoever's on Channel 7 and... You know, coming back with what we were talking about with the, the established media um, pushing their own narrative, that's what we're seeing because they're not even looking at that. Um, uh, you know, they're not they're not talking. What they should be doing is informing us four steps ahead of what the government of the day is talking to us about. Well, it's capture, isn't it? They've been captured mm. by the agenda. Mm. They're blinded. They're blinded to the gets biblical in its proportions, isn't it? But I, I I knew that as an actor for many years that the group of actors have been captured we were part of globalism we were the mouthpiece for globalism no one tapped me on the shoulder and said by the way you know you're the mouthpiece for globalism if anyone was likely to tap anyone on the shoulder and say that it was probably me Mm. (laughs) one of my colleagues but we all knew it you knew it just by being inside the institution and everyone's experienced it to some extent you work for an organization you know you're not allowed to say this you're not allowed to say that but that's become uniform hasn't it? it's become uniform across all institutions and that's that's the that's true, and that's what's that's why it's so vulnerable, because it's so hollowed out and so plastic and so fake now. The mainstream media, and it knows that my children don't watch television. What are they gonna? How are they planning to hope for the future? Are the boomers still watching it? Who's watching it? Mm. I don't watch television. I never watch it, and I'm I'm probably uh, it's demographic, you know, that generation X. Yeah, I stopped watching TV when they got rid of the Jack Irish series, so. Um, ah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> you know how to say the right things. Yeah. You know how to say the right thing. I'll just put you down in groupie list. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> uh, because I even used to like Aussie Rules, right? I really liked it up until last year, and then I said, "No, I can't even watch Foxtel anymore because of the social engineering that they use football to weaponize their social engineering agenda." Yeah, that's what a, a woman came up to me and said to me today, and um, and uh, you know, on Puckle Street, and. Uh, she is a lesbian woman and she was sick of the agenda, sick of the uh, um, trans agenda. She'd had enough of it. And she asked me what my policy was. And I said, well, we've got, you know, a policy which we're developing on, which is about our, protecting our children and it's uh, education, not indoctrination. She said, that's enough for me. Thanks very much. I'll take your flyers and I'll be taking them back to my home. You know, where I live in East Brunswick, all places, the inner city conclave mm. of aggressive and progressivism, and I'll be distributing them with my girlfriend. There you go. That is we're good. Some, we're, in, we're into some new movement, you know what I mean? Now, yeah. she would have been probably similar age as me, so maybe we're more, um, we have more in common because of that. that. Mm. Okay. Because so, of generation, I don't know. But it's it's an interesting point we're at, yeah, yeah. Okay, so but now. See, she doesn't like that that's been weaponized too against that children that might traditionally have been considered gay are now being pushed into being trans. Mm. So it's a, an absolute affront to her 
and maybe she's a champion of female sports as well too and she worries about you know male athletes transitioning and dominating female sports and, and okay so that's something that i do want to ask about um my so she'd have more in common with me than the progressive agenda yeah my, my favorite person on twitter the pirate um peter fitzsimons and like mate trying to get him on he just keeps ignoring it he keeps mocking me for my podcast and, and blog but still won't at least he's mocks you that's good at least he's noticed you if he's mocking you yeah. that's fantastic Oh, I get retweets from him every once in a while when I um, have a crack at him about things um, and then his minions come out and have a crack at me. But, hey, mate, mm-hmm. I don't care. I've been retweeted by the pirate. That makes my day. Um, so his wife's on Channel 10 and that show on Channel 10, isn't she, that panel show they have on Channel 10? Yeah, Project. Yes, that's it. Yes. I wasn't going to mention its name. But oh, sorry. <laughs> no, it's right. I'll blank that one. I'll beep that one out. Um, but, no, I mean. Just for context. I've taken Channel 10 off my list. I've edited the channels. I don't even channel surf through Channel 10 anymore. That's how bad they were. I couldn't even surf through it. So. Oh, I don't even do that. I just plug the Apple TV in and, and watch stuff that will entertain the kids. So I wonder if it's important for me to keep an abreast of what's happening on TV at the moment because we're in the election cycle, obviously, with the election being called and being held in you know, three and a half weeks' time. But I didn't see any of the debate between Albo and Morrison. I missed it. Okay. Okay. Now, but that's something that that does interest me, and uh, discussed with that um, the the debate, the leaders' debate, and all that sort of stuff. But is it really a leaders' debate? Because um, either one of them could get, you know, politically knifed before the election is called, before the election day, and then we've got a new leader. And so, what's the point? It's not like it's the American thing where, hey, you're actually voting for a president. We're not voting for either of these two buffets to become prime minister. We're voting for an electorate, uh, an elected representative, and if there's enough representatives of party A or party B, then the leader of that party becomes prime minister. Um, so I think that the... Well, that's the Australian system, isn't it? Yeah. You know, vote for the party, not the... Yeah, I think the, the, the whole leaders' race. debate is is just um, yeah, blowing wind up their own backsides or, or trying to pretend that they're something that they're not. Uh, yeah, they've all fit into it. You know, the media fit. The media want want to reduce it to something that they can work with. Two people vote, you know, a t- two person debate. That that's how they want to frame it. That's great. Um, you won't get one nation invited. You won't get pub invited. I mean, I, I don't even think Palmer could get to the press club at one stage. They said just go away. But yes, yeah, that's a, that, yeah. that's how they want to do it. They want to frame it, and they run presidential campaigns. And you're right. You're absolutely right. That's not the system we have. Well, He's Palmer was going to do the press club, John, and the ABC said they said they weren't going to cover it. And then yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, they've decided that that's not worth. That's not part of what they wanted to report on. He's an extraordinary so. guy coming out running a serious third political force in the political system, and has done on numerous occasions, having been successful too many, on many times in getting people elected. But he's not yeah. worthy of their mm-hmm. coverage. <laughs> and that's why they changed the model in 2016 to stop him, <laughs> to stop right. Palmer because he was so successful prior to that. Right. Jeez, they do want to fortify the billabong, don't they? They do indeed. I like how you're saying that. Yeah. I like how you're playing. Um, <laughs> Can we snatch that from you? <laughs> Run that by me. No, we have. Right we're, 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 we're I'm writing it down now as we speak. Good, mate. Good. Good. <laughs> Um, okay, mindful of the time um, and all that sort of stuff. I know you guys are probably pressed for time. You've probably got more babies to kiss and hands to shake and all that sort of stuff. Uh, is there anything that... That's exactly what our campaign's about. Yep. <laughs> um, 
any any final words or thoughts or comments or anything like that for the um, as we? I reckon those babies are going to prefer me to kiss them than John. I'm just saying. That. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying that. No, I'll defer to you, mate. That's. that's <laughs> <laughs> I could be screaming when I come too. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. That's going to be the hardest. The whale they make when they see John's head coming into that. Um, yeah, trying to keep Ram, a positive face. carriage. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a reason I only do interviews. You know, I've got a I've got a head for uh, interviews. Oh, for <laughs> podcast, right, yeah, yeah, right head for podcast. Yeah, don't, don't put me on there. I scare people. So, yeah. what's going to happen when you're on the red leather in the Senate? What are you going to do then? Oh well, well, people we'll put a bag on his head, mate. We're going to we're getting the bag, people, you know, <laughs> in our colours, blue and yellow. Yeah. <laughs> you get support staff, you get the chief of staff, and the six other sort of staff members. So, I'll just allocate one for the hate mail. And that'll be okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can take care of that. Nothing I, nothing I can do. Um, stay in, I'll stand in these shadows, but there you go. Um, okay. Any any um, final pitches or anything like that? We're going to be out and about. When are you putting uh, this podcast up? Because we're going to be out and about on the weekend. Yeah, you're going to um, put me on the spot again. Um, I have okay. told Twitter and Facebook I'll get it up tomorrow after. Uh, so well, when, Wednesday today I'll, I'll get up Thursday. We've got a series of commitments on the weekend where at 11 o'clock we're going to be in the Melbourne market and it's a great opportunity because I remember being there a few times. I remember actually walking to a protest in our park somewhere in North Melbourne because I thought I can strategically get away from there, you know what I mean, when you become to the protest movement. And I walked through the market one time having parked in North Melbourne and uh, one of the um, vendors came out from behind their store and said, by the way, mate, just let you know, the police are just around the corner there. I saw them assembling there earlier. Bang, boom, how beautiful is that? Oh. He was, a, he was, you know, he was part of the movement. He was watching us on Cafe Lockdown. And then a similar thing happened when we assembled, had that big march that assembled in uh, Flagstaff Gardens. Uh, it was extraordinary. It was huge, the biggest protest movement in the history of the country. And uh, we went to the Melbourne market afterwards and sat down and had something to eat. And I was talking to um, uh, a group of uh Turkish vendors, they had a fast food joint in the corner there and uh, we talked for ages and ages about the response to the pandemic and what it had done to destroy their business and their family life, et cetera. And then in the end, they just gave us all this free food, saturated in oils and fats and so no one actually wanted to eat it, which was funny. (laughs) We gave some of it away to hide some of it. It was just too much, but it was just overwhelming. That response was overwhelming. And again, because we were just willing to have the conversation. And they were quietly saying, we love the protest movement. They weren't going to protest themselves, but they were loving the fact that it was happening. So what a great thing is we're going back there and I'm going to try and uh, renew some of those acquaintances, let these people know that we're actually now forming a political force to push back against these measures. Mm. And after that, we're going to meet at the MCG at 3.30, so 11 o'clock will be there, 11 a.m. at the market. 3.30 will be at the front of the MCG. I think it's Melbourne Hawthorne. Starts at 4.35. So, again, we'll be there for an hour as people come in. If people want to come up and have a chat, grab some paraphernalia, we'll be selling T-shirts for the campaign. We've got these beautiful blue and yellow T-shirts um, that will be on sale uh, to support support what we're doing. And then, finally, we'll be at Southern Cross Station at 6 o'clock. I think there's another game in, I think it's what it's called now, Etihad Stadium or whatever it's called, uh, Marvel, I believe. And uh, so that's a big weekend. And there's some speaking engagements coming up on Sunday as well. Um, uh, Trafalgar, I believe, is at 2 o'clock. 
Trafalgar and Gippsland at uh, 2 o'clock. So you can check the website and check the uh, Facebook page for further details. And the following week, we're heading out to Mildura to, conf- uh, to continue with the regional tour we've been going, doing because the whole of Victoria is our electorate. Mm. Anyone who's a registered Victorian voter is legally obliged. They might not want to and they might not do it, but they're legally obliged to vote for a Senate candidate. And the whole of Victoria is the electorate for anyone that's running for the Senate. So I just thank God every day that I'm not running in Western Australia. Yeah, yeah, trying to get around that would just be huge. Um, It's bad bad enough trying to get around Victoria. But it's a good thing too. It's such a fact-finding mission because people in the regions, and John and I went out and talked to a woman, Anita, um, who lives out in Donlan. Yes, Anita Donlan, of course, who lives out in uh, Bendigo. We had a great chat with her and we probably get some endorsement from her and we were able to take on board some of the things that are particularly concerning uh, regional constituents, as it should be, yeah, as um, it should be for a senator. Yep. Just talking about things that are concerning regional constituents, um, how was your walk across the bridge? <laughs> Have you seen that? Yeah, it was pretty, yeah, it was pretty difficult from Achuca to Moama. It was infuriating, to be honest, because I wasn't expecting it. So I got there expecting – the word was that uh, first it was Scott Morrison was going to open the bridge and then we heard it was the deputy. We heard Barnaby Joyce was going to open the bridge. It's part of the pork barrelling or whatever they do leading up to the election. Um, and then we got there and we couldn't get on the bridge without a vaccination status, without a passport, a bridge out in the middle of nowhere crossing the Campaspe and then the Murray River, a kilometre of bridge brand new bridge and we couldn't get off. Of course, you could get on it because it's impossible to police not getting on it, but you had to be covert about how you got on it and had to jump a little fence, little railing, and then you're on the bridge, you've jumped the railing and then you're frightened. Is an, is an official going to come up to you and say, hang on, mate, we saw what you did. Get that. You're not allowed to what? Is it a fight? Am I going to get a rest? What is it? Is it a fine? What happens then? No, nothing happened. But there's that anxiety created as a result of it. There's all these signs on the bridge, please stay 1.5 metres apart as everyone walks next to each other, shoulder to shoulder, arm to arm, walks around the signs so that I bang into them. They're so close. It's, it's a lie. The whole thing's a lie. It's a farce. Everyone on the bridge knows it's a farce, but still we participate in it. The amount of people that were complicit in queuing up to show their passport to get on that bridge was disturbing. I start saying a few things, of course, and there's a lot of people laughing. There's a lot of people laughing because I'm saying things. And uh, then there's a lot of pushback too because they don't want me to say anything. Because by saying anything, by pointing out the truth, it's humiliating to their complicity. Or is there people so genuinely scared of this virus that's not taking out people in proportions we're expected it to take people out in? And then, of course, there's the concern, do I walk over to the Moama side? Has the New South Wales bureaucracy been complicit in also uh, um, assembling a barrier Mm. to exit entry? Oh, yes, they have been. So now if I get off on the Moama side, is it, as, is it as easy to jump back on the bridge and come back to the Victorian side and get my car? So no, I won't leave and walk over to the Moama side because I don't want to have to come back through having to show my um, status. And that's the complexity that's been created in Australia. Is that still in still the case today? No, you know it's not. They can't afford to keep that up. That was only there because Barnaby Joyce was coming to open it. Mm. But it's not there today. Of course it's not there today. So it's all back to normal. But it's not 
because that's not normal. That's not normal. And I talked to a guy who poured the concrete to make the bridge who was from Echuca, and he told me he was going over the old bridge to come to the new bridge, and they'd changed the mandate in New South Wales the night before, and the policewoman said to him he can't come over with his paw, with his truck, because it's now illegal. So the only way he can now legally enter New South Wales from Victoria is on a plane from Tullamarine into Sydney Airport to Kingsford Smith. (laughs) It's insane. Now, in the end, someone came, a superior came over and let him do the poor because I've got to build the bloody bridge. <laughs> the contract's already signed. But that's the imposition it creates. So people say to us, oh, we just want freedom. So who cares? Just get on with your job. Take the vax and don't worry about it. Well, this is the reality is there's an economic imperative to what we're talking about. This is going to shut the whole culture down. The whole countries are going to um, suffer as a result of this. Mm. So someone needs to say something. And, of course, I met a uh, Liberal candidate on the bridge. And he said to me, oh, look, mate, you're, I can see you're a bit angry. I would like to talk to you, but I can't. You're a bit emotional. I wasn't emotional. I was just being articulate like I hope I am right now being. But, of course, I had too much uh, passion in my argument for him. So he was then able to dismiss me on the grounds of how I was actually engaging in the discussion as if I wasn't infuriated before. I was infuriated then. And his, there's a, a woman with him who said, well, there's no constitutional grounds for Morrison to do anything. Of course, it's all Daniel Andrews' fault. They're doing the buck passing. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, there is, because now I've read the Constitution and 5123A, amended in 1946, clearly states that no Australian citizen will be conscripted into taking a medication. Yet that's where we are. And, of course, they walked away and left me alone because they didn't want to hear the argument because they're apparatchiks of the system. That's why we're running as independents for the Senate, mm. to blow that system apart and tip some tables over and remind them that we're here and we are representing the Australian people, not corporate interest. Yep. Okay. And, and, okay, how can the Australian people find you or Victorian people find you? You did mention Facebook uh, and website. So what's where are they? Yeah. If you go to on Facebook, there's a thing called uh, Damien Richardson for Senate. That's a group. So please welcome that. That has a lot of information and links to other stuff. At Damien Richardson for the Senate. At Damien Richardson <laughs> for the Senate. And then there's the webpage www.damienrichardson.com.au. <laughs> which also has a donate button. So no one, please be afraid to press that donate button. Of course, it's hard for us to take on the majors uh, from uh, the amount of money that they've got, obviously, to spend on the campaigns, et cetera, that we don't have. And there's also an ability to join Team Demo on the Facebook page, which is obviously our volunteers group. And uh, there's quite a few people there. And again, we're, we're assembling, we're studying more and more as John and I keep uh, the process is working. We're finding a real structure now for people to exist. And as the election gets closer to it, it's becoming very apparent the jobs and work that we need to do that be any chance of having success. Um, yeah. Look, as John's quite rightly points out, we've got uh, two weeks of pre-polling. Now, they say, they estimate, it was 30% last time, last federal election, there were pre-polls. They estimate it might be up to 50% this time in general, in response to the COVID crisis, which is a crisis of, you know, 
the bureaucracy is making in many respects, but we need to have those pre-polling stations manned by our volunteers because if we just if we bleed all of those votes, there's going to be pretty hard for us to make up all that ground on the actual polling day. And then, of course, on polling day, we need volunteers as well to hand out how to vote cards and, uh, you know, um, uh, put a word in for uh, voting for Damon Richardson for the Senate. Yeah, so team, team Damo is important for everyone that's got an interest and wants to help. Please go there on Facebook. Uh, if you're not on Facebook or whatever, go to the, the website, as Dame just said, damianrichardson.com.au, and there's some information there and the opportunity to tell us that you want to volunteer or donate. Um, that would be great. And I'll include links to all of that in the show notes. Uh, gentlemen, once again, uh, it has been a pleasure to have you both on, um, this time both of you together rather than separately. And uh, good luck with uh, May 21 when it rocks around. Thanks, Cameron. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. And thanks, John, mate, for joining in, mate. It's been really good to have you there, have your um, political acumen backing me up. It's fantastic. Uh, yeah, great, mate. Look, we'll, uh, if we fail here, we'll just get – we'll do a double act somewhere. We'll be fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> we won't be allowed uh, in. We won't be allowed <laughs> in. That's yeah. Well, well just, I'll have to limit to podcasts. That's okay. Yeah. Or um, the, the Northgate Amphitheatre, mate. We'll be doing it in the Northgate Amphitheatre. <laughs> 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 yeah, we'll do it in a par. Uh, but hey, again, Cameron, thanks for the opportunity, mate. I hope that's been uh, hope that's been uh, helpful to everyone that listens. It has, and it will be, and uh, hopefully, it all converts to the uh, the numbers that you need. So, once again, guys, good luck with it, and um, thanks for taking part in the Fifth Estate Podcast. Thanks, mate. Right. See you, boys. Bye. Uh, that's about it for this episode uh, thank you for listening and um, if you want to look for Damien on uh, Facebook and his website there will be links to it in the show notes on this podcast uh, now talking about show notes for this podcast I would appreciate it if you could give me the standard five star review on this as well as sharing your thoughts on the uh, this interview in particular this discussion that I had with John and Damien and uh, anything else that goes on that you think I should be listening to or talking about. So thanks again for tuning in, and I look forward to having you join me on the next episode of the Fifth Estate Podcast. Bye for now.